You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If we've not met before, my name is Matt Luloyan. You've been welcomed by several people already, but I'll be another another face, another voice to welcome you here this morning. Uh, Good to have you with us. And if you have Bibles, uh, we'll be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10 today. Uh, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that John just mentioned a moment ago, uh, our text today is on page 846, uh, right in the middle of Mark 10 uh, is where we'll be. Uh, this week in particular, I've been spending some time thinking about the, the phenomenon of deconstruction. Uh, are you familiar are you familiar with this word? Um, and, and if not, that's okay. Um, it's become something of a, of a trendy thing right now uh, for Christians, and especially Christians who are more widely known or have a public presence in some way, um, to quote-unquote deconstruct their faith. And what they mean by that, what this, what this word means, is that uh, people really begin to question more deeply, in some cases for the first time, uh, if the Bible, uh, if the gospel, if the Christian faith is true, is reliable, is worth following. And in recent years, uh, a number of uh, formerly Christian artists and authors and celebrities have very publicly renounced their faith, and it's started and also maybe been part of um, some of this wave of, of deconstruction. Now, as we think about that, on, on the one hand, this is nothing new. Uh, ever since there have been Christians, there have also been Christians who have renounced their faith for all kinds of reasons, um, some at the threat of persecution, Uh, Some with a lot of hostility and malice, some with deep and sincere doubt. Uh, There's no reason to be surprised, there's no reason to be alarmed when when this happens or when there's even a wave of it seeming to happen because it's by no means new in the history of the world. The aspect uh, that feels novel maybe about this wave of deconstruction is that among other variables, This one feels tied directly to a couple generations of very shallow discipleship in the American church. Uh, What do I mean by that? I mean, often with really good intent, there's been such a push to attract people to Jesus, um, to attract people to the church, and then to measure success by numbers of baptisms, numbers of conversions, uh, church attendance, rather than seeing people deeply rooted, deeply formed in faith. And so when that happens over time, it happens to the extent that the goal devolves really into just getting and keeping people. kind of becomes the the goal of a lot of the churches in the country and the society in which we live, just get and keep people. And I get that. Uh, As as a leader in Jesus' church, I feel the draw of that. And so I'm by no means this morning trying to remove myself from this and throw stones at something from a distance. I've said this before, but, but to identify problems in the church, that's just the equivalent of the participation trophy. Like, congratulations, you're finally playing now, and you can see the problems that exist in the church. But what I'm increasingly convinced of is that even when it's done with the best of intent, that it's done with the intent of, of seeing people become Christians, that to lower or to modify the bar in any way for what it means to actually follow Jesus is incredibly short-sighted. It's incredibly short-sighted. 
And in Mark chapter 10, we'll see a man walk away from Jesus. In the Gospels, this is actually a far more frequent occurrence than you might think. People get offended by Jesus all the time. They walk away from him. They sometimes ask him to, to walk away from them. They ask him to leave. At one point in John's Gospel, in John chapter 6, many among the larger group of Jesus' disciples turn back and they no longer follow him. And so Jesus in that moment turns to his 12, his closest 12, and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? Will you go away also? And if a moment like that has not already come for you in your life, it will. It will. We should expect that. And in fact, I think that's one of the variables in this phenomenon, in this wave of deconstruction. It shocks some people to come face to face with doubt. Uh, it upends their life. Why? Because in so many cases, they've been discipled, maybe intentionally, but often unintentionally, to think that Christians are people who don't doubt. The Christians are people who, who don't struggle, who don't wrestle deeply throughout their lives. And on top of that, if you're taught, again, intentionally or unintentionally, that Jesus makes all of your problems go away, or that Jesus makes your life easier, or that Jesus somehow fits comfortably and conveniently into your life as it already stands, then ultimately, you actually have no bedrock for your faith. You have shifting sand underneath your feet. And so when you suffer, when your family and friends or your kids suffer, uh, when your faith comes into direct opposition with a prevailing societal view and you find your, your reputation just tanks in certain circles. In other words, whenever there's then a real cost to following Jesus for you in your life, you'll walk away. Of course you'll walk away. There's no, there's no foundation under your, under your feet. And for you now, your perception will be, well, following Jesus didn't work for me. Why should I keep trying harder to make this work? Here's the thing. This, this kind of shallow discipleship, it's not Jesus' fault. Jesus never pretended that following him was easy or convenient. And perhaps even harder for you and I to grasp this morning, he let people walk away from him. He let people walk away. He let people send him away. He even created an opportunity for the 12 to turn back. He gave them, he paved an off-ramp for them. Will you also go away? Here's a moment, if you'd like to, I know this is offensive and hard, here's an off-ramp. And this is why it's essential for us to really, in the Gospel of Mark and throughout the Scriptures, consider the call of God, the call of Jesus Christ, and to take him at his word and to count the cost of following him. Um, to not import our own definitions, our own understanding, and even those we may have picked up in Christian circles for what it means to follow Jesus Christ, for what it means to be a Christian. In today's text, Jesus explains how the kingdom of God is radically different than our kingdoms. We have to reorient the way that we think about wealth, and we have to reorient the way that we think about greatness. And as difficult as they are to hear, as even more difficult as they are to practice, these are the kind of words which build a bedrock foundation for faith. These are the kinds of words that are the antidote to shallow discipleship. Because at the offense, at the offense of these words, we will either walk away 
Or like the disciples in John 6, we will return to Jesus and say, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. And so I'm still following you. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be, ser- not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. O Christ, by remaining faithful till death, 
you show us the road to greater love. By taking the burden of sin upon yourself, you reveal to us the way of generosity. Come now by your Holy Spirit and help our weak faith. Create a pure heart in us, renew and strengthen our spirit. O Christ, your word is near. May this morning we hide it in our hearts and may it guide us always. Amen. So with the rest of our time this morning, let's consider two hard teachings of Jesus, two paradoxes, um, two reversals of how life in God's kingdom is radically different than life in our kingdoms. True wealth is about worship and true greatness is about service. Those are the two we'll look at today. So first, true wealth is about worship. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually all record this episode in their Gospels, and collectively we have come to know uh, this young man as the rich young ruler. Everything in this account and the other accounts say that, that he's a sincere person. He's a sincere, devout, religious man. And he runs up to Jesus here and he kneels before him. As we find out, he's taken great care to live a faithful life, to observe the commandments, the laws of God. But now he wants to make sure he wants to know for certain that he has done enough, that he has done enough to inherit eternal life. Before Jesus completely upends his life, uh, he drops a hint to this young man. When this young man calls Jesus a good teacher, Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And Jesus here is about to redefine things around a relationship with him, around following him. And following Jesus starts by recognizing who he really is. That Jesus is good. He is God. But as we're prone to do, as this young man's prone to do, rather than acknowledging this and allowing him to reorient us, we, like this man, want to come to Jesus with our resume in our hands. This man wants a resume check, not a reoriented life. He comes to Jesus saying, here's what I've done. Is that enough? Can you just sign off on that? Is it enough to inherit eternal life? And though Jesus could press him on any aspect of his commandment keeping, he could push hard on that and figure out probably how he actually did not keep the commandments. Instead, what he does with a, with a surgeon-like precision is he points to the real root issue. That this man's real hope, this man's real trust is not in God, but it's in his own wealth. And that as long as this young man can keep his wealth, he'll do the other things he's supposed to do for God. But Jesus says he can't keep it. He can't keep his wealth. Why not? Because far more than God, wealth is the object of his devotion. Wealth is his worship. He's not ultimately God-oriented, though he's keeping commands of God. He's wealth-oriented. And as is always the case, real faithfulness, real allegiance to Jesus is tested at the point of the conflicts. It's tested at the point of conflicts, not where your life already kind of aligns with the ethics and the moralities of the kingdom of God, with, with Jesus' teaching. The real allegiance and faithfulness is tested where it would never line up if it were left up to you. And money is certainly one of those points of conflict. Then, in the first century, and today, in 21st century central Pennsylvania, money is one of the most common idols, objects of counterfeit worship and devotion. Uh, for many people, money is a functional savior. It's the thing that we actually trust, that we actually rely on to deliver us. 
It's not the only one. Uh, There are many such functional saviors and idols. Power, sex, success, comfort, reputation. But money is this man's idol and functional savior. And that's why Jesus puts this spotlight on it. He's saying to this man, that money you trust, give it away. Trade it, actually, for treasure in heaven where where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Why? Because as he explains further in Matthew's gospel, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's where you'll really be devoted. True wealth is about worship. And in reality, some of the most materially wealthy people in the world are the poorest. And some of the most materially poor people in the world are the wealthiest. This man, having great material possessions, walks away in this moment from treasure in heaven. He walks away from Jesus being his treasure. He he foregoes everything, everything, in order to keep hold of that which is ultimately nothing. And Jesus proceeds to teach his disciples how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he goes on to say, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, over the centuries, some people have attempted some really goofy interpretive gymnastics to get around this teaching of Jesus. It's like playing Twister with the Bible, where like if you put your one foot here and your one hand here, you can maybe make these other two. Yeah, not helpful. For example, in the ninth century, Somebody started teaching, well, actually, there was this small gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye. And to get through it, a camel had to take off its load and kneel down, and you could, like, shove the camel through this very narrow gate called the needle's eye. The problem is, number one, there's no evidence that that gate ever existed. Number two, it misses Jesus' point completely. (laughs) Completely. Jesus' point is not that it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's that it's impossible It's as impossible as taking a giant mammal, a camel, and pushing it through the tiny eye of a needle. Why so impossible? Why so impossible? Because nothing will delude you and me into thinking that we're okay like having money. Nothing will delude you into thinking that you're independent that you're sufficient, that you're capable. Nothing is the enemy of the desperation required to enter the kingdom of God like money. And don't we always balk a little bit when a rich person buys his or or her way out of legal trouble? When money makes someone think they can get away with anything and then they often do? How much worse is it when we try to buy our own way out of sin and into the kingdom of God? See, poor people know they can't do that. Rich people delude themselves into thinking they just might be able to. And in order to keep hold of their great possessions, they forfeit treasure in heaven. Tragedy of all tragedies, they forfeit Jesus himself. Now, most of us in this room are among the wealthiest, most comfortable people ever to set foot on the face of the earth. Uh, Relatively speaking, relatively speaking, many of us are in the middle class. Right, relatively speaking, in our nation, in our time. But from a global and a historical vantage point, any time that Jesus offers warnings about the deceitfulness of, and the dangers of riches or wealth, we should listen up because that's for you and me. That's for you and me. Like this rich young ruler, we are prone to choose material wealth over 
Jesus, like this rich young ruler, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for us to enter life. And so the disciples ask, well, then who can be saved? And friends, it's when you're driven to that question that you are now at the doorway of the kingdom of God. When you're driven to that question, you're now at the doorway of the kingdom of God because now you're beginning to see the miracle of salvation. Only when you're as astonished and offended and troubled as these 12 men are in this moment when they ask this question, have you begun to understand the scandal of the grace of God? See, we often agonize, and we should, about why all people don't experience the salvation of God. That's right and good to agonize over that. But even more, and in the first place, we should be astonished that anyone gets to experience it in the first place. That I get to experience it. That you get to experience it. And I've been thinking about that a lot this week. That I'm relatively wealthier, more educated, and then just even from a personality standpoint and living in this culture that I live in and born into the family I live in, I'm more disciplined, more capable than most of humanity. Unlike billions of people who have existed on the face of the earth, I have an intact family with parents who are Christians. I grew up in a couple good churches. I had some great people take me under their wing as a young man and mentor me. I had opportunities and enough spare time and enough disposable money to travel, to go to college, and to have hobbies. And all of that counts for absolutely nothing. In fact, if anything, it makes my salvation that much more of a miracle. Because solely by the grace of God, this camel has gone through the eye of a needle. And a wealthy person who has no reason to, in desperation, cry out to God, has entered the kingdom of God. Has been woken up by the mercy of God to see his need and to enter. Who can be saved? I can. And you can. If he hasn't already, someday, with this kind of surgeon-like precision... Jesus will put his finger on the idols of your heart and he will push there. And he will call you to forsake those to follow him. He will call you to leave that behind. For many of us, living in this time and place, it will probably involve money to some degree and possessions. Maybe that's money and possessions we already have. Maybe it's money and possessions we might otherwise have if we applied more effort and energy to try to just gain wealth and that was our sole objective in life. When those moments come, like this rich young ruler, may Jesus look at you and may he love you enough to so clearly lay out the choice, treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. But unlike this rich young ruler, when those moments come, may you forsake your material wealth for real, real wealth. May you choose Jesus and follow him. Second, True greatness is about service. It's not only that, that true wealth is about worship, it's also that true greatness is about service. Between Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 10, Jesus predicts his death three different times. And this third prediction, which comes in verses 32 through 34, uh, it's more specific than the first two. It will be in Jerusalem, he says. It'll come at the hands of both Jewish and Gentile leaders. It will include mocking and spitting and flogging and killing, and then three days later, he'll rise from the dead. Each time that Jesus predicts his death, he follows it up with some instruction about what it's going to mean for the disciples to follow him into that death. And then each time that is followed up by the disciples demonstrating that they haven't really understood that yet. 
So here, it's James and John's turn. They all have their turn at some point. Here, it's James and John's turn. They asked for positions of greatness, positions of honor in the kingdom of God, one sitting at his right hand, the other sitting at his left. As we mentioned in, the pre- in previous weeks, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. And so thinking that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to usher in political deliverance and triumph over the Roman Empire, they want to be prime minister. They want to be chief of staff in the cabinet of Jesus' new administration. Now when they get to Jerusalem, think about this, there will be someone on Jesus' right and Jesus' left. But like Jesus, they'll be hanging on crosses of their own. James and John, as Jesus points out, have no idea what they are asking. No idea. And so Jesus asks in return, are you able to do what I'm about to do? Are you able to do this? A cup, in in biblical language, it's it's an allotment from God. And occasionally in Scripture, a cup is, is is an allotment of joy and prosperity. Far more often in Scripture, a cup from God refers to his judgment, to his wrath against sin. And in love, and for the sake of the world, Jesus is about to drink that cup down to the dregs. On the cross, he will experience a unique suffering, being forsaken, being abandoned by God in order to pay the penalty of humanity's sin. But James and John, not understanding that, say here simply, yes, we are able. It's one of the... It's one of the greatest overstatements ever recorded in the history of the world. Yeah, I think I I can do that, Jesus. What you're about to do, I can do that too. But this overestimation, it's the classic error of people who want to be great, who have aspiration, who desire to sit in places of power and importance and significance. Now, there's something really good about ambition, really good about aspiration. Because on the flip side of that, there's this false humility that's actually an avoidance, where we refuse to actually step into all that God has called and equipped us to be, and we call that humility. So don't hear me bashing ambition or bashing aspiration this morning. But this overestimation, it's the classic error of people who don't really understand what greatness is. And God help the one who with this misunderstanding says, like James and John do, we are able, I am able. Because as they will find out, you might actually get what you ask for. You might actually get what you want. Jesus might actually put you on the path of real greatness, which he goes on to clarify is measured not by how many people serve you, but by how much of a servant, how much of a slave you become for the sake of others. In our human kingdoms, great ones are those who exercise dominion. And the word there in this text means they're the ones who gain mastery over others. They're the ones who subdue other people. But in God's kingdom, whoever would be great must be the servant. Whoever would be first must become the bondservant, must become the slave of all. Why? Because that's actually the only way that anyone enters the kingdom of God at all. Verse 45 turns the world upside down. Because unlike every other religion, every other worldview where the people serve God, Jesus, who is God in human flesh, comes not to be served, but to serve. 
His was the kingdom and the power and the glory. He created the world. He was the agent of creation, firstborn over all creation. And he left all that. He came not to subdue people and gain mastery over them, but to serve them, to save them. Jesus is the epitome of greatness. He's the epitome of greatness, but he measures his own greatness by the enormity of his service, by the enormity of his sacrifice. He came to serve people to the extent, as he says here, of laying down his life, giving his life as ransom, as payment for the freedom of you and I who were otherwise enslaved to sin. And Jesus Christ's work is both our salvation and our example. First and foremost, there is no salvation for anyone apart from Jesus laying down his life in our place. His life, his blood, is the price which paid that penalty of our sin. The cup that he drinks is unique. His work is unique. He alone, by his service, can save men and women like you and me. But his service, as he's saying here, also becomes our example. James and John, he says, they will drink their own cup. James, we come to find out years later, will die a martyr in the early church. John will live a long but hard life which ends in exile on an island called Patmos. Both of them in service to the church, both as bondservants of God. And with different specifics, whoever would follow Jesus must pursue that same posture. And this is actually as as counter to our culture as it gets. Because by default, we seek how other people can benefit us. That's just how we tend to view the world. We tend to view other people by the, the benefit they can bring into our lives, how they can serve us. And in those moments where we, ought, where we might be inclined to serve other people, it's almost always those who can reciprocate in some way, who can, who can help us. If we serve them, they return the favor by helping us. They can help our career track. They can help our bottom line. They can help our sense of satisfaction, whatever it might be. It's actually the same line of thinking behind many recruitment tactics of service organizations and volunteer groups and global missions even. Do this because of the amazing experience it will be for you. Do this for the sense of self-satisfaction it will bring. But ultimately, if you really drill down on it, that's not serving others, that's serving yourself. That's serving yourself. What is service according to the kingdom of God? Jesus wasn't in heaven one day sitting around thinking, you know what? My life feels pretty empty. My life feels pretty empty. I need to do something significant. I need a richer experience. I want to become more well-rounded. I need a few more things on my resume. Maybe I'll serve some people. Now Jesus, for the life of the world, poured himself out to the point of death. So that image bearers of God, men and women like you and me, might be set free from bondage to Satan and sin and death. The only way that we will ever truly serve people for their sake and not ultimately our own, the only way that we will serve people in the model, in the mold of Jesus, is if we first trust his service for our salvation. Otherwise, like the rich young ruler in a way, somewhere in the depths of our hearts, we'll be serving others in order to gain something from God. We'll be bringing our resume of service to God in order to to earn salvation from him. Hey, Jesus, is this enough? Have I served enough people? We'll be serving ultimately underneath all of that ourselves. 
And so instead, let us first freely receive the service of Jesus for our sake. And then in response, become those who freely serve others. I'll close with this. Two of the rhythms of grace that we talk about a lot here at Liberty Church. Generosity and service. And these flow directly from Jesus' instructions to his disciples about true wealth and true greatness. The kingdom of God is radically different from our kingdoms. True wealth is about worship. It's about being wholly devoted to Jesus. It's about Jesus being our treasure. So then we're free to be unbelievably generous with any material possessions, any material wealth we do have. And then as he teaches, true greatness is about service. It's about offering ourselves up. It's about pouring ourselves out truly for the good of others and not ultimately for ourselves. So this Lent, take stock of your life. Are we pursuing true wealth and true greatness? Or have we allowed corrupted definitions of wealth, corrupted definitions of greatness to dictate our priorities, to dictate our perspectives and, our, and the labors of our lives? These words from Jesus in Matthew 10 and Mark 10, these are words which over the centuries have led many people to walk away from Jesus. But these are also words that have ushered many people right to the threshold of the kingdom of God. To perceive the miracle of salvation, to be driven to that point where they cry out like the disciples, then who can be saved? And can answer, I can, you can. And wherever you recognize that you've fallen short in these pursuits of true wealth and true greatness, take heart this morning. Your whole life, your whole life will be a process of progress and growth in these things. And the disciples are nothing if not an example of that. How slowly they understand this. How slowly do we? And there is room and there is grace for you in this process there's not room to lower the bar. There's not room to change what it means to follow Jesus. There's not room to try to introduce a foreign false category of a costless discipleship. So let us together continue to experience the offense and the reorientation of Jesus' words. Let us never settle for less than true wealth and true greatness of God's kingdom according to his definition. And rather than walking away, let us turn and return to Jesus in faith. To whom shall we go? He alone is the ransom for many. He alone has the words of eternal life. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God of all wisdom and wealth and greatness and power, in Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross, you have opened for us the path to eternal life. So grant that we may joyfully serve you in newness of life, that we may walk faithfully in your ways. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.